Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where two longtime friends talk about your favorite genre films and indie movies. I'm Joseph, and this is my co-host, Lydia. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. Did we want to try to incorporate, we really need to figure this out in an intro, <laughs> our introductions of each other? Yeah. Um, do you want me to go first? Yeah, just say one funny thing. <sighs> that would require me to be funny. Um, <laughs> it's not something I'm known for. This is Joseph, my one of my longest friends. Jesus, that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and he has a deep, deep-seated need to debate everything I say. Okay. <laughs> That's about as funny as I can get. Lydia believes in UFO conspiracies. That's what you're getting <laughs> for today's pod. I wouldn't say I believe in them. You want to believe. Would you say I want to believe? I The poster on my wall <laughs> directly behind me, I don't know if you can see it, would indicate as such. Can you, is um, it actually in the shot right now? Can you see it? Oh, yeah. I always, oh, I'm always believing. That's so funny. I didn't even realize that you could see the poster in the background. Um, so we just finished watching The Karate Kid, the original 1984 film. Yeah, not the, not the Jaden Smith remake. No. <laughs> but uh, we were inspired by the latest show on Netflix, which is Cobra Kai, which we both finished the first two seasons, which is what's out so far. Mm-hmm of and uh decided that's the mood that's what we want yeah. to uh chat about but before we get to that we we'll... needed some nostalgia yeah um before we get to that we're gonna talk about our usual stuff which is where we chat about some stuff we've been watching so what have you been watching lydia i just have i ever told you how much i love your need to describe this every episode describe what the format <laughs> presumably at <laughs> some point the people listening to this are people who have listened to previous episodes. <laughs> I think it's nice to know when you go through an hour of us not talking about the thing that yeah, I be mean, prepared. Ex- expect the fact that despite the episode title being something to do with the Karate Kid, that we will only spend 30 odd minutes speaking about the Karate <laughs> Kid, but this yeah. will be a, a hour and a half podcast. <laughs> so I just like to reassure it's just see that inception okay all right it's just so scripted sounding every time um should are we do do i talk about the thing we both want to talk about or do i talk about the other thing that i've seen how about the other thing okay all right cool so i went through because we watched heathers previously and because we watched heathers i got i do this thing (laughs) <laughs> this this very weird thing because I have OCD tendencies 
related to my anxiety disorder. So I will watch a movie with something with someone in it. And I, I just get really attached to the actor. And I've done this since I was like 12. And then I get this weird obsessive need to watch everything that that actor has been in. Um, so we watched Heather's and I, I remembered how much I loved Christian Slater. So then I went on a Christian Slater kick and have now seen everything that's worth watching that Christian Slater has been in. And one of those is my personal favorite, um, which is Pump Up the Volume. Mm -hmm. So I rewatched that recently. I'd seen it for the first time when I was like a teenager. And it's definitely one of those teen movies where I feel like you do want to see it for the first time as a teenager. But yeah, I just, I really love that movie. It came out in 1990. It has Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis in it, who was the voice of the main character in the Fern Gully movie, which is okay. an impeccable animated film. Um, <laughs> but no, it's just a really cool movie. It's about this guy who moves from New York to Arizona because his dad gets a great job. And he doesn't really have any friends and he has a hard time talking to people. He has sort of like a social anxiety thing. So he starts a pirate radio station out of his like bedroom in his mm -hmm. parents' basement and just like spews his thoughts, a like stream of consciousness style. What what year did you say this came out? Nineteen ninety, I believe. So I I'm reminded of like, uh, oh my god, what was the young one? But I was I was thinking of Radio Free Roscoe, which is probably a Canadian only Family Channel thing. Oh, but definitely maybe, is. Maybe. Um, but yeah, pirate radio station one. But there was another one, Radioactive or something like this. Oh, but it was another like high schoolers start a little um radio club or whatever in their school and it was on canadiana podcast every time oh but it was God, on uh, no ytv no okay well this I'll came out in 1990 i'll look it up okay yes. look it up um stars christian slater fucking iconic role and like if you watch this movie you definitely get sort of a holden caulfield-esque vibe from his mm -hmm. character without all of the like really high-end rich white privilege so like he's still like a middle-class white kid but it doesn't feel as gross as when holden caulfield calls everyone a phony and it certainly has more of a hopefulness but i feel like pump up the volume is like one of those perfect for the 90s kind of movies because it really encapsulates that specific brand of nihilism that was so on trend with like mm -hmm. millennials of the 90s and Gen Xers of the 90s. Um, the same reason why Seinfeld worked so well in the 90s, but probably wouldn't translate humor-wise as well today. Mm -hmm. It's very much a coming of age and an understanding of like the difficulties of teenage years and the understanding of trauma that exists in childhood and how high school should be but never is that sort of safe haven and then teenagers trying to find their voice in a world that really wants them to sit and listen not stand and speak but it's a lot of fun mm -hmm. it has a rad soundtrack you will never find another movie that uses this much leonard cohen especially not in the 90s and especially not for teenagers that's a interesting choice yeah yeah um and it's and it's just like it's it's loud and it's intense and it's a lot of over intellectualized thoughts and streams of consciousness way too much smoking but i think that's pretty <laughs> on trend with like 90s media i don't know there's something about it that's just it's it's just perfect for me 
And it was perfect for me when I first saw it. And I think it's a movie that would unfortunately be incredibly difficult to remake now because of the ease at which you can create these sort of environments for conversation with the internet, with podcasting, like something like pirate radio, just it doesn't work anymore. Or like a pirate podcast, like you can't do that. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Which I think is unfortunate because I think the message still works now because it has a lot to do with like teen pregnancy and like teenage suicide and the intense feelings of pressure that helicopter parenting and schools who only receive funding for high test scores can put on teenagers. Problems that still exist and exist to higher degrees now than they even did in the 90s. Yeah, I loved it. And his like radio persona is Happy Harry Hardon, which is hysterical to me for some reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I I, ne- I didn't know about it, and it sounds actually pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and Radioactive is a Canadian sitcom, you know, so terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's wild. You should look it up. They they kind of look like the cast or the bandmates of very much that in the early nineties pop punk band type stuff it the one guy's iconic he has bleached hair that he like ties in like little no swirls no no yeah don't need it's it. bad I'll take, looking i'll take like shirtless christian slater in overly oh. fitted levi's okay. any day of the week <laughs> so yeah the one that i was going to transition to feels like it's the wrong mood so let's go to what uh the other option you were thinking of talking about, because I think it fits to okay. go on with, but King of Staten Island. Yes. Starring Pete Davidson. There you who go. both like. Love Pete Davidson. I love Pete Davidson. I And I love everything about Pete Davidson. Like I love <laughs> his stand up. I love every interview I've seen with him, and I love him in movies. And I know like I get why people don't like him because like on SNL he doesn't play character. You know, like he's really just Pete Davidson. Like he's he's shitty in sketch comedy. But like his stand up is so fucking funny to me. And I think it's because he reminds me so much of the kinds of people I hung around with when I was in my big party mm-hmm. phase in my early to mid twenties. Like I knew tons of those dudes where you just like smoke up in the basement and talk about dumb shit and do stupid shit. And I don't know, it just, he works so well for me. It it feels like I'm sitting on a couch listening to, like, the dumbest stories from one of my stupid friends after a night of, like, shitty partying. Mm-hmm. He feels very, very authentic. I don't know as many people like that, but there is a sense in which he feels very, like, there's no difficulty, like, it's full transparency. Like, there's yeah, no difficulty understanding who he is yeah. when he's... Even in even in this movie, like mm-hmm. he play, basically plays himself. Well, he does essentially. Yeah, although, but it's not him because it's a character named Scott. But it's yes. a character named Scott, it but he co-wrote the film with Judd Apatow. Yes, um, and it's semi-autobiographical. Like it's about him. Yes. <laughs> so yes, it, it makes it a confusing barrier, but it isn't actually him playing himself. But it is a semi-autobiographical it's- movie. It's him playing a version of himself. It's basically him working out some of the issues that he currently has and how he feels he would have turned out had he not found comedy at a young age to cope with the loss of his father and his own like illnesses 
So I watched this with my family. And so my dad was super into the fact that Bill Burr is in it and plays. Dads love Bill Burr. The guy who's uh, dating his mother, his real mother in the movie. Or like, not, okay, how do I say this exactly? His mother in the movie, who is Marissa not Tomei. his stepmother. Um, yes, and who my mom loves. So it was a real easy sell to my family. And they were really excited to watch it. And, Marissa and Tomei yeah, is really, a fucking treasure. Yeah, it really bridged. My family has a lot of problems figuring out movies to watch together because we have very different views on a lot of stuff. And, you know, of course, my parents like a bit of that older 80s cheesy style and, and stuff like that of things, which I'm okay with, but there's a lot of it which I don't take as seriously. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but the movie itself, I'm not sure what I want to say yet. So maybe you can start us off. Um, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. There's so much about it that feels very authentic. Like, I've never been to Staten Island, so I have no idea mm-hmm. if this is accurate to Staten Island. But as far as, like, my late teen and early 20s kind of years, it feels very authentic to, like, my experiences here um, and the types of people that I have hung out with in the past. And I, I like the fact that most of the characters, like, the in his friend group are played by people he is actually friends with in real life. Like, you have Colson Baker, Machine Gun Kelly. Did not know that. Yeah, so Machine Gun Kelly, Colson Baker, is one of his best friends. He plays the tattoo artist that he wants Mm -hmm. to, like, apprentice for. Ricky Alves, I think, is the name of one of the guys in the, like, posse. And he is also a stand-up comedian and a very good friend of Pete Davidson. So, like, a lot of the people in the movie are people who are either good friends or in that friend group in real life. Mm Mm-hmm. Or are in some way, like, either related to Staten Island or related to the movie production. So, like, his sister, I think, is played by Judd Apatow's daughter. Mm -hmm. So stuff like that. So there's a lot of ingratiation. And, like, obviously Bill Burr, who, of course, Pete Davidson knows because they're both stand-up comedians and they have a relationship there. So there's a lot of, like, authentic chemistry between everybody in the film. And then, alternatively, as you go into, like, the firefighters... You have people who were or are current firefighters in Staten Island playing the firefighters. Wow. Including Steve Buscemi, who, while is a very famous actor, was previously a New York firefighter before he got into acting. Um, He actually went down on 9-11 to assist in the rescue efforts, Mm -hmm. which I think adds an extra layer of connection because Pete's dad was a firefighter and died in 9-11. Yeah. And so that's one of the central points of the movie is that he's about 26-ish, I believe, in the in the movie. And he... 24. Okay. He's supposed to be 24. And so he hasn't moved out of his mom's house. And really, they very abruptly show you it many times. It's not a secret in the movie that he is really troubled by his dad's death when he was quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, but In the it's movie, really I think he was seven. Left him, yeah. It's really left a scar on him. So he's really played up to be a sort of man-child mm-hmm. and is extremely irresponsible. Of course, the big scene being he literally tries to tattoo a kid because that's a career <laughs> path he wants to pursue and has to get tattoos uh, practice on people child and so he yeah tattoos 11 year old child with his consent Harold, um, yeah i thought he was like 15 <laughs> yeah um so that was 
really <laughs> disturbing. I think this the, the movie, one thing it does weird is that there's very disturbing things that they really play off as like, whatever. Yeah. Like the tattoo thing, which they do sit creasers, but there's literally, they, they rob a place in, in a later scene. Yeah. And it's treated so weirdly because there's a shootout. They, some people go to jail and it's like, it's all treated like lol jokes. Like we're whatever. We're just teenagers. Or I mean, they're not, they're like 20 year olds or whatever, yeah. but we're just 24 year olds doing 24 year olds. I'm just like, this is so surreal as a moment. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's really coasted in a weird space for me. I feel like too, you kind of have to put it in the region that it's about. Like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Staten Island. There isn't, but Staten Island does mm-hmm. have a relatively high crime rate in relation to the state of New mm-hmm. York. Um, and it has a higher percentage of working class people and people living below the poverty line. So you do have a lot of like those kinds of petty crimes in areas Mm -hmm. that exist in those kinds of brackets. And again, there's nothing wrong with Staten Island. I am sure it is a wonderful place. I'm not trying to shit on it. I'm just saying like, I don't, I think for us as Canadians in Southern Ontario, while there is crime here, you don't have those kinds of things happening often enough that they're treated sort of blasé. Whereas like, even when I was in Toronto, you see that kind of shit a lot more often. So it's not as shocking anymore. Like Mm -hmm. it is a little bit more blasé. And I think you are going to get friend groups and family members and people tangentially related in those areas, treating it less seriously than if you don't experience it often. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two scenes with people with gunshot wounds because of stuff that is treated so nonchalantly in the movie. It's just, it's a different kind of atmosphere as a whole movie that I'm, that I'm used to that is kind of unique to itself. I can't, I don't really have a comparable space for it uh the the stuff that really stuck with me in the movie is of not of course but like is the transition where he goes under pete davidson's character scott goes under some firefighters wing mm-hmm. and sort of learns gets out of his man child phase by being an, uh taken care of uh by this group of guys. And so well, I'll, I'll ask you first before I have my sort of confused opinion about it. But what did you, how did you feel about that kind of character for, arc? For me, like that whole arc felt very much like a journey into self-discovery, but also him reconnecting with who his father was because he's young and like he's old. He was old enough when his father passed that he remembers him, but not well. And he was young enough that, like, a lot of those memories are just going to be positive about how his dad was a cool dude. And then growing up from there, all his mom ever told him was about how perfect and wonderful and selfless and great and how he's an excellent role model. And he has this image that he can never live up to. So I think he sort of put himself down continuously because he can never live up to this pedestal that he's put his father on and now meeting these other firefighters he is learning more about who his dad was in reality and Mm -hmm. reconnecting that image to like 
who he is and understanding that like his fuck ups are not that different. His like arrested development isn't that different than who his dad was. And that's okay. And there are ways that you can turn those into positives and you can be productive and you can achieve the things you want to do and still fuck up and make mistakes and be imperfect and be a little messed up, be a little crazy. So I I, loved everything about that because that felt really, real to me like that felt accurate like it it didn't feel like oh he's being taken instead of being taken care of by his mom he's being taken care of by these firefighters and suddenly like being around manliness made him a man again it felt more about reconnecting his understanding of who his dad really was and not limiting himself to that image you know what i mean I, I think that's right. I I struggle with it, I think, because of a conflicting feeling of, again, this a, th- a thing that comes up often for our podcast is like the political moment and the 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 feelings of it. Like I imagined first when he was doing this firefighter things, like what if this exact storyline was done, but it was it was a, a police precinct in which all this was happening, then our political moment would really interfere with the storyline being told. Now they're firefighters, so there's a different whole dynamic, but I couldn't help but feeling this this guy who, because he has a legacy, his father's legacy within a, a fire department, he's treated, he's, he's given like a space to be taken under this fire department's wing. And even though he's not trained to become a, a firefighter or anything, learn some of the techniques, gets to go on rides and really goes through this reconnecting with his father. And I think it's, beautiful insofar as it's that but when i think of it like as a system and that his friends all just went to i mean you know to give away but his friends all just went to jail it feels like such a strange like he just gets this weird moment with because of the legacy of his father and these like good guys that are firefighters to help him out and that's how he's getting out of his problem there's something about it that really I don't know. I didn't like the coincidence of it or like not even the coincidence, but the way it um, came together in terms of emotions. I really liked the movie, but during that part, I just felt that it was this weird unfairness between hit what, where his life ends up going and where his friends' lives lives are when he made the same mistakes and was in a way one of the worst of them. Well, with the kid and whatnot. I mean, yeah, he tattooed a child, but they didn't go to prison because he tattooed a child. They went to prison because they I mean, held he up should've. a pharmacy. And the he didn't get caught. Like, he did not mm-hmm. go to prison because he found these firefighters. That had nothing to do with him not going to prison. He didn't go to prison because his friends who robbed a pharmacy didn't rat him out as the lookout. Yeah. Like, that's the two I don't consider necessarily related. That whole character arc for me, felt more like him learning about the imperfections of a person that he put on such a pedestal that he could never live up to. And and creating that image damaged him to such an extent that he just stopped trying. Like, instead of finding his own thing, he was too afraid to die the way his dad did. And he was too afraid to try anything else and be successful at it in case he failed and wasn't as good as his dad. Yeah. 
I mean, that that is the, the storyline here. I, I just think, for me, it conflicts with the actual circumstances in which a lot of his friends are going under and things like that. And that he gets a DSX Mac and a way out of it. It just, it felt like a weird connection. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I just, I, I don't think that's necessarily untrue in life. Like, sometimes people well, yes. have community members that stick up for them or stand up for them and help them and help them get through issues. And especially when you're talking about, like, the Scott character who has, you know, uh, medical issues and mental health issues. Like, those kinds of things can have a tendency to be insurmountable without some type of a community. So really, Mm -hmm. it's just showing you, like, the positives versus the negatives of the types of communities you align yourself with and how they can benefit and detract from your life. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would add to that, too, that, of course, it ends up being a father figure or a group of father figures that gets him out of the situation, which just to me felt like a bit of a disrespect that so he's with his mother till 24 and apparently not doing well and cannot deal with his father's death still. And then basically the moment father figures enter his life, everything becomes better. Is such a frustrating, again, it's like, it's not the moment connection. because the moment, like, Bill Burr's character enters the situation, if anything, he gets worse. He doesn't mm, get better until he starts learning the honest truth about who his father was. His mother, in an effort to protect him, created this image, like, this perfect and unblemished image of who his dad was. And because he was a child when he passed, he had no memory of him being anything less than, like, super dad. It was an unattainable goal for him. And when he meets these other firefighters who actually knew him as a real human who makes real human mistakes and does real human dumb stuff, he starts learning that, like, everyone has imperfections, that there is nothing unattainable here. Like, your dad can be a great person and also be a fuck-up sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, like, you two aren't that far apart. Like, you're not miles or anything apart. You're very similar human beings. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I, I definitely agree that that is the, the journey he goes under. I think the ending surprised me, too, in that he doesn't answer the question of... He, you sort of see him going trying out a bunch of different stuff in his life, but the movie doesn't end with him making any sort of choice of those those career paths. So I thought that was a kind of interesting... Um, fulfillment that they managed to make it still fairly fulfilling as an ending but not give an answer to things and in a way knowing that it is like you almost think like well it's because he doesn't choose those paths he chooses to become a comedian that it isn't him but at the same time there is like a, a like you know if they if they'd shown like w- what his character does become there is a way in which it almost breathes a sense of falsity because you know he's a comedian now so right. you're like I mean, I so see there is a way saying. in which, by leaving it open, it helps to encapsulate the auto semi autobiographical nature of it. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I don't know if I necessarily took that away from it. For me, it just felt like he had had all of these ideas about what he wanted to do. But he never put effort into them. Like his effort was in the idea he created. And then he would just be like, I want to do this thing, but like, I'm never going to try and get better Mm -hmm. or get more skilled at it or like find a job where I can do it or anything like that. He just always quits halfway through. 
So by the end, you see him actually sticking to the one thing that, like, he has some talent in because of the support of these men in his life who genuinely think, like, hey, you actually are decent at this, like, you should practice, and I'm going to give you a way to do that. So by the end, like, to me, it doesn't necessarily seem like he's chosen a career. It seems like he's stuck to an idea and is actively trying to train himself to do it Hmm. he's trying to learn and he's sticking to it despite it being complicated and difficult and eventually that may or may not lead to a career but for the first time in his life he's sticking to something in a meaningful way as opposed to just goofing off and fucking around with it yeah so it it turned out after the movie was done it turned every single one of us loved the movie but i do think it's it sticks out in a way that's hard to hard to pin down because I don't, it doesn't strike me as a coming, to, uh, I mean, it is a coming of age story, I guess, if you had to categorize it on anything, but it doesn't feel like in any way standard because he's so much older than your usual coming of age story and that the types of characters are so different. Yeah. Which I kind of love though, because like it almost feels more accurate than those like yeah. standard coming of age stories as teenagers. Because as we know, like millennials and Gen Zers do tend to, get settled in careers, get settled in homes and in relationships much later in life um, than previous generations. So it does almost feel like disingenuous to have that teenager coming of age story because there is sort of a sense of arrested development because of the nature of the world that we're existing in. It's, it's harder to get a post-secondary education. It's, it's more challenging to get an entry level job. It's almost impossible to buy a piece of property So we're hitting these milestones later and later in life and spending more time trying and failing and choosing and trying and choosing again. So having that kind of arrested development coming of age story in your in your 20s resonated with me better because I I was Mm -hmm. the type of person who went to school and changed majors and didn't do well and, you know, worked in retail and had to like spent years trying to find something I was reasonably good at that I could make a career out of. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have your next thing on the list? Yeah. So in the vein of my um, OCD tendencies, uh, immediately after finishing King of Staten Island, I watched another Pete Davidson movie mm-hmm. that came out this year as well. I watched uh, Big Time Adolescence. Wow, he was busy. Well, one was filmed last year and one was filmed this year. But yeah, so I saw Big Time Adolescence, which is Pete Davidson and I can't remember the kid's name. His last name is Glick and I can't remember his first name. And also Machine Gun Kelly again is in this. Um, <laughs> okay. And again, it's it's, it's, wow. it's it's another indie movie and it has a similar vibe to King of Staten Island. It's It's certainly less like autobiographical to Pete Davidson, but it very much fits his sort of niche. And it's interesting because it's big time adolescence. Like in the way that King of Staten Island is a story of arrested development and maybe a more reasonable look into what it's like to be a millennial or Gen Zer right now and how you will make those choices later in life. Big time adolescence follows the coming of age story in sort of two different narratives. So you have 
your main character, who's like a 16-year-old kid, and then you have Pete Davidson's character, who's like 25. Um, But they're both kind of going through a coming-of-age story journey in different ways. So... But anyway, so it's about Mo, who's played by Griffin Gluck Monroe, who's a 16-year-old kid, and he idolizes his older sister's ex-boyfriend. So when he was, like, seven, his sister was dating, or, like, eight or something, his sister was dating this guy, Zeke, who's kind of your average, like, high school cool guy loser. You know, the guy who would always show up to Mm -hmm. the party with, like too much weed and share with everybody and like he's just kind of a legend in high school Mm -hmm. and mo thinks he's like king shit like he just thinks he's the coolest fucking guy in the world um but they end up breaking up because zeke cheats on his sister but mo doesn't want to lose this sort of like older brother best friend figure that he has so he continues to hang out with Zeke throughout his adolescence and into his teenage years. So now he's in high school and he doesn't really have any friends his own age. He's only friends with Zeke and Zeke's friends who are all, you know, like 24, 23, mm-hmm. which has given him this sort of skewed notion of what is appropriate behavior for a teenager and what is appropriate behavior for an adult. Because realistically, an adult man hanging out with a 16-year-old boy is fucking weird. Like, it just mm-hmm. is weird. But he's he's going out and hanging out with them, and they hang out in parking lots, and they drink beers in public, and they smoke weed at their, like, house that they all live in together. And, of course, a teenager is going to think all of that is, like, the coolest shit in the world. But in reality, Zeke is this 24-year-old dude who is reliving his high school glory days and can't get yep. over his like six like his high school girlfriend who has entirely moved on, lives with her new boyfriend in a condo that they own together. So you're going through this journey of like Zeke realizing what it means to peak in high school and mm-hmm. how to move past that or if it's possible or worth it to move past that. And then Mo understanding that like the type of cool that Zeke is, is unintentionally toxic and doesn't work as you start to grow. So while Zeke at, at the beginning point, Zeke only kept Mo around because he felt bad for him. By the end, Zeke doesn't know how to exist in a world that Mo isn't there with him as this mm-hmm. little brother figure who looks up to him and thinks he's cool and continues to give him that sort of high school high feeling where he's king shit. But Mo no longer needs Zeke anymore and understands that he has moved past that point in his life. So it's it's really sad. It's kind of this like paths diverging yeah. as you grow story, which I think is very real. But it's it's sad to see like one person grow beyond the needs of the other and the stagnation that that can lead yes. to for that person. And And there's sort of a choice there where you have to decide if you're just going to move on and grow without them. Or if you're going to plateau with them. And Mo ultimately chooses to like succeed Zeke. Mm-hmm. And Zeke remains sort of stuck. I, I mean, I've, I've been there in, in my own life. And maybe not consciously made that choice. But certainly it's something that as you grow up, you, you realize 
you know, different people's lives are, are going to be in different motions in different, mm. going to different places, going in different ways and speeds. And yeah, that can definitely be a big reason why even very, int- well, I mean, most importantly in intimate friendships or intimate relationships. For sure. When I was, they're messed up. It's strange to think about because when I was in high school, I, of course, had these friends where I was like, we're going to be best friends forever. Everybody Mm. does. But you genuinely, I think when you're 15 or 16, think that like, you know, we've been through some hard time. We've been friends for four years or however long it is. Like there's, we're never going to grow out of each other. And then you do. And it's, it's really hard to understand what to do with that kind of feeling where you're like, I, I am not the same person I was two years ago. And you are, and I don't know what, like, there's a, there's an inherent guilt there where you need to move on, but you feel like you're abandoning a person that you genuinely care for, even though the relationship is no longer healthy. And then alternatively, I have friends that I've known for 10 years, 15 years, and while relationships are not always perfect, and I've had fights with these people, or we've gone months without talking... They're still the most important people in my life, and I still somehow have not outgrown that relationship, or they have not outgrown me. So it's it's just, it's strange how some people you can grow with each other, and even if you need different things, can still maintain strong bonds. And then mm-hmm. other people, somehow a level of toxicity seeps into the relationship that it never really seems like it's any one person's fault it just no longer works for either of you or is safe or healthy for either of you. And what do you do at that point? Because I can't, I can't blame that person for not being the type of person I need in my life anymore. And they can't blame me for outgrowing the type of relationship that they were accustomed to or comfortable with and don't want to change. Yeah. So what do you do? Like you have to say, goodbye but it's sort of this like anticlimactic breakup to a friendship that's almost more painful because you have you have no real person to blame and now like big time adolescent zeke is not a good role model like he is kind of a terrible person and he makes giant mistakes with mo Mm -hmm. but you can tell he genuinely loves mo as a family member like he loves him like a little brother and he he wants the best for him he just isn't mature enough to make the decisions that do that have the best outcomes for Mo. That's actually a thing I think a lot of media I get frustrated with, or like stories and narratives, is that they often, if two characters have to come apart or things, there's often this need for a betrayal or like a real mistake. Like the person makes a really big mistake and then it's justified in some way or there's some really clear point where it's like now I cannot follow this mentor anymore or I cannot be friends with this person anymore but at least in my own life most of those and it's exactly as you say this toxicity comes in or this changing gears in life and it can be very different in different cases like some have been more explosive than others for me Mm. but it comes down to a thing that has been a buildup over years months or years or whatnot and you know it comes up these conversations you have with that person you're just like i don't see how this works anymore but it's it's rarely in my in my view that they did something crazy during that moment or even in the recent history that can be a catalyst sure yeah but i 
I, that is a frustration I have with some narratives is that I think in real life, it is often much more of a drawn out, yeah. frustrating thought, reflective process. And that's the thing, like, there are big things that happen in big time adolescence, like that are terrible decisions. But despite Mo being 16 and Zeke being 23, 24, like it, it does feel like a lot of those mistakes are a combined effort. So Zeke will suggest mm. something or recommend he do something. And it's his one, his one only friend in high school that's his age finds out that he drinks and parties with Zeke and his friends. Mm-hmm. So he wants him to bring alcohol to this seniors party so that they can go and they can be like in with the cool crowd. Right. So Mo goes to Zeke and begs him to buy alcohol for him, which he originally isn't going to do. Like Zeke doesn't think it's a good idea, but then he changes his mind and elects to do it. So that decision and what that ultimately culminates in um, is less to do with Zeke pressuring him and more to do with him trying to be the type of cool guy that Zeke was in high school. And that's very much like an internalized Mo thing and not really Zeke's fault, even though Zeke is supporting this negative behavior because Zeke doesn't want to lose Mo. Mm-hmm. And doesn't understand that being an adult in a teenager's life gives you a certain level of responsibility to be a positive influence. Yeah. Um, this actually segues nicely into my final thing I want to talk about before we get to Cobra Kai, um, which was a rewatch that I think I've talked to you about before, like long ago, long ago. Um, but I rewatched it with before my time. family my mom and brother, uh, which is a show called My Brilliant Friend, which is based off of the novels by Elena Ferrante, who is a mystery. She's a mystery. We don't know who she is in real life, which I think is kind of cool. But she wrote these Italian novels, which have been translated into English and are very, very popular and are now being made by the European um, government to help, like, in in Italy. They're making um, true Italian uh, TV show seasons based on each book. So each book gets a full season. So we just watched season one in anticipation because I, I wanted to rewatch it because season two is out now. And so I'm going to now head into season two, but haven't done so yet. My Brilliant Friend is about two girls growing up in a sort of suburb or a neighborhood just outside of Naples, which is a kind of projects, you could say, where it's it's for poor families. They built these apartment buildings. And it's really, really dismal conditions. Um, just these apartment buildings, nothing, uh, you know, nothing that isn't gray in the area. There's basically no greenery in their courtyard, nor in the area around them. It's all just dusty roads and kind of broken things. Basically, the town is run or the neighborhood is run by the two families that own the biggest businesses, which is the grocery store and the bar are the only two businesses you really see in the whole town. And so they're essentially mafia families. And it's about these two girls growing up dealing with the violence and chaoticness of living in such a neighborhood. And so it starts with them really young. And that the one of them, Leela, she turns out to be very brilliant from young age. In grade one, she can already read and write, which is like before even being taught. She'd already learned it. And so her friend Elena, the main character, is just 
so so shocked and wants to follow in her footsteps and and learn. And she so she's very studious. She isn't as smart, but she's very very studious and works hard to keep up with Leela. And they try to become close friends um, in this way. And yeah, watching this with my family, it's just such a beautiful journey. Each episode really captures um, moments in their lives and the frustration of growing up in a neighborhood of violence, of gender roles, and of um, poverty in which opportunities are just ripped from them constantly. Or even if it's not opportunity, it's the inability to act or exist in the way they want because the men around them treat them uh, as as whores, as they say, or as too prudish or too um, trying to be a guyish and trying to interfere mm-hmm. with guys' business. For example, with Leela wanting to continue on with her education and costing money, her family's like, why would we spend money on you when your brothers didn't even go to these schools, right? And so there's all these layers interconnected in it. And the story is just incredible between how many characters in this town and the the character journeys they go on. And I think that's what's most impressive about the show is that so many characters get these really clear but intimate arcs, intimate, intimate looks into their type of person and character, and you really get to understand each of them just loved it it's 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 so transportive too to this 1950s to 60s and 70s um outside of naples italy and just the like the grocery store for example which i guess in my view i had this stereotype of an italian grocer would have you know lots of pasta and it's like actually it's it's mostly cured meats and stuff like that because they have to hang that and so there's a lot of that and then of course vegetables and things like that too so of course they eat pasta often but it is you i love this clash of feelings where you have your own stereotypes, your image of how things would be. Um, but then you see the this more authentic way that things right. are. And so I love connecting to other um, uh, cultures like that and exploring those things and just super well-made. So that was an awesome rewatch and I'm super looking forward to season two. But that's, that's it for cool. me. I have one little piece of news that I should have brought up yesterday that I forgot about. <laughs> But I am assuming you heard about J.K. Rowling's new book. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I can't even remember what it's called now, but I know it's... I didn't even see the title. Yeah, it's under the Cormoran Strike series, which is like her mystery novel series that she writes under a pen name. Mm -hmm. But this new book is obviously receiving a significant amount of controversy, given her like very turfy status. Mm -hmm. Um, And for whatever reason, choosing the hill that she absolutely needs to die on is transphobia. But this book is about, it's a mystery crime series about a serial killer who is a cis man and dresses up in women's clothing Mm -hmm. to lure women from their safe spaces, like invade traditional women's spaces so that he can murder them, which is fucked up and also the plot of silence of the lambs so she's essentially like stealing another author's story and somehow making it worse Mm -hmm. and like oh yes because she has clear political intentions yes and also like 30 years after when like realistically we fucking know better now you know and she's saying it's based off of these real serial killers like there is one particular serial killer who did who was purported to have at one point 
dressed up in a dress and a wig to lure a woman from a parking garage. One murder, and it is not even proven. There are just some eyewitnesses who saw a bulky, oversized-looking woman in a dress around the time that this victim was abducted. It's like, you don't even know if it was actually the serial killer who did it. Anyway, so she's saying it's based off that. It is clear that it's a political agenda. But the pen name that she uses is the reason I'm bringing this up. Everything else aside, she writes this series, the Cormoran Strike series, under the pen name Robert Galbraith. Mm-hmm. So Robert Galbraith is a real is a real person. Robert Galbraith Heath was an American psychiatrist who developed gay conversion therapy for the CIA. <sighs> Jesus. By putting electrical nodes in the brains of men to try uh, and turn them straight. Yeah. Yup. And I just, I struggle with the blissful ignorance of trying to say, oh, she just cho- chose this name out of thin air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Given her platform and everything she uses it for. And the racial stereotypes and and inappropriate stereotypes she even used in the Harry Potter novels, it is very, very hard to think that she was not aware of who Robert Galbraith was. Did you have anything else you wanted to get to before? No, that's it. I just felt like I really needed to make a point of how fucking gross J.K. Rowling is. (laughs) Karate Kid. Yes! Oh, The Karate Kid, 1984. Yeah, you want to dump some facts? Give us the facts. Sure, give you the (laughs) facts. All right, hold on. Let me pull up the book. I wrote some fun facts down. All right, so The Karate Kid came out in 1984, was directed by John G. Alvidson. And it's so funny because when we first started the movie, I haven't seen Karate Kid since I was, you know, a kid. And we first start this movie and I'm looking at it, I'm like, this has such a Rocky feel. Mm. The director of this movie directed Rocky and Rocky V. I'm like, wild. Okay. And and you said it before you looked it up. It's true. I did. I did. Thank you for backing me up on that. I did say (laughs) it before I looked it up. Um, But yeah, so the director, John G. Alvidson, did Rocky and Rocky V. The writer was Robert Mark Kamen, and he wrote The Fifth Element taken and taken one through three among other things like he wrote the transporter movies a lot of those like standard action films that had either jason statham or liam neeson in them Mm -hmm. wrote them but yeah it just has such a quintessential 80s feel and it feels very like the teen version of those kinds of 80s action films like lethal weapon and rocky and all of those movies which evidently the director and writer were both involved in Mm mm-hmm I have more fun facts if you want me to keep going. I just figured that was really the only well, yeah, and then point it, facts. Yeah, because then the... So it's, it's Ralph Macchio playing Daniel yes. LaRusso, the main Ralph Macchio character. is Daniel LaRusso and uh, William Z- uh, Zubka as uh, Johnny Lawrence and Elizabeth Shue yeah. as Allie and then Pat right. Morita in the classic Mr. Miyagi role. Right. So sticking to just Karate Kid... For now, but because I honestly, my thoughts are actually going right away to Cobra Kai because I, I, having just seen Karate Kid together, I think it's really interesting how they take the two in different directions. 
So, but Karate Kid is clearly a kind of cheesy but earnest '80s movie. Uh, you know, with and I was saying right from the beginning, there's something so powerful about the fact that it's like it's just going to be him. He gets straightforwardly beat up, straightforwardly likes a girl who likes him back, and he's just like, I want to date this girl and not get beat up and defend myself. And he goes on this really heartwarming journey with this older man who buys him toys and... Don't fucking... (laughs) Don't say it like that. He doesn't buy him anything, actually, in fairness. He does not actually buy him anything. He gives him a bonsai tree. And they spend 50 hours a week together. Mom's nowhere to be seen. That is weird to me. That is so weird to me. I feel like there's, like... I understand that the 80s and 90s were all about latchkey kids and all of our parents just fucked off to work and, like, left us (laughs) to our own devices. But there is something really fucked up about, like, this presumably 15, 16-year-old boy being left alone with this, like, 65 year old man that his mom has met once for two minutes like it's fucking weird Mm -hmm. and he's just like his mom's like yeah just go and play karate with the old man who like sometimes fixes faucets in our apartment building at a house that i've never been to or even know exists all of the time in between school and on weekends like that's fucking weird pay attention to where your children are (laughs) yeah and so i think i think the movie um holds up it fe- it still feels very charming i do think some of the cracks are starting to show yeah miyagi and the accent it's hard not to notice it as something that probably wouldn't be done the same way today yeah i mean and I... the way that there's a kind of exoticism to japanese culture um placed here i agree um i think especially because like there's a lot of similarities between Pat Morita as a person and Mr. Miyagi as a character. Mm. Like we did go over some of those interesting factoids during the movie. But ultimately, like, Pat Morita was born in Amer- in America as an American citizen. Like, he was born in California. He He didn't have that, like, super intense, thick accent. So there is something a little odd about that. Um, and the broken English thing. It's just something that I don't think you would see today mm-hmm. unless it was actually a Japanese person who was born in Japan and had a Japanese accent doing that. Yeah. And it's interesting for me, like, I really love the Japanese aesthetic and I really love, you know, of course, the lessons and what people, what everyone loves with the movie, the wax on, wax off, this probably totally false way to yeah. learn karate. Like, I've never heard of a karate school that actually teaches anything like this method. No. Right, but so there is clearly an uh, an exoticism appeal, but there is something at the heart of it which I do think, even if it is this totally Americanized version, does connect this doing your chores, taking care of your own space in order to strengthen your inner balance, strengthen your inner self, and deal with these problems. The movie, I think, at the time it might have been a better, a, a stronger message of this, but now in 2020, looking back, the message of karate's for defense only, blah, blah. And yet he, you know, fights off these, he's a 65 year old man who just fights some teenagers yeah. is a bit much. Yeah, but that was in defense of someone. Of course, He didn't just go out looking to wrestle teenagers like a fucking weirdo. <laughs> it is in defense of someone, but let's, let's take it exactly. No, it is You weird. know, in the most charitable case scenario. If we have a high school, or I've, I live like, if I found out a 65-year-old man who was a black belt in karate was beating up five, you know, high schoolers, no, I'd be weird. like, what is happening? Yeah, it's weird. A grown man beating uh, up children, even if the children were, like, 
beating up another child is weird. Like, it's a weird thing to do. You know? Like, you, you don't, you don't climb up a fence, like, silent as a cat and then, like, leap <laughs> down onto a bunch of teenagers when they're not expecting it. It's weird. Especially, like, if you were to show it today in the age of cell phones where you could legitimately, like, call someone. Mm. To take, like, to, like, handle these teenagers or just, like, be like, I'll call your parents. Mm-hmm. Like, in, in an age where you have access to that kind of technology, it would be especially weird. Although that does happen in Cobra Kai, too, so. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what, like, where, where is the adult supervision of these children, is my question. I understand that the Cobra Kai kids have, like, a bad role model in their karate teacher. Like, mm-hmm. John Kreese is a piece of shit and, like, obviously violent and manipulative. But, like, I don't know if it's supposed to be a commentary on, like, wealthy parents not giving a shit about their children or something. But, like, seriously, where mm-hmm. are all of their parents? Like, it's mm-hmm. weird. And, I, and I'm not even saying that, like, parents stop bullying. Of course bullying still happens whether parents are aware of it or not. But it's just weird that at no point did one parent say, like, hey... I should probably do something about my kid kicking the shit out of another child at school. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is a lot of the questions or a lot of these prompts are addressed, at least in part, in Cobra Kai, the TV show, where they really take a lot of these stereotypes. Like, of course, one of the examples is when Daniel LaRusso wants to start his own dojo. Um, Now that he's much older. And he wants to start his own dojo, and he has this advertising with all this Japanese-themed stuff. And he gets called out for yeah. cultural appropriation and how, like, using this exoticism <laughs> isn't maybe appropriate. They start calling him Daniel the Racist, which I think is just yeah. fucking incredible. <laughs> um, and I think, um, I think it's really good, too, because he has, he has his car dealership in Cobra Kai, and he has mm-hmm. commercials on TV for this car dealership, and he uses bonsai trees. And he, like, yep. profits off his image as a karate champion, and nobody calls him out for cultural appropriation or microaggressive racism or anything, but it's on cable TV. But he puts mm. his dojo commercial on YouTube online. Right. Interesting. And sends it out to the internet because he's trying to get teenagers to join his dojo. And he know, like yeah. they realize internet is the way to go because his kid and, and the other kid are helping him market this dojo. And that's where he gets called out for cultural appropriation and racism. And I think it's because the younger generation that is more sensitive to those types of microaggressions and more understanding of that problematic kind of nature are not the generation that have cable TV and they're probably not the generation that buys fucking cars from dealerships. Mm-hmm. So of course, Cobra Kai begins with Johnny Lawrence, the character, his rival in Karate Kid and where his life's at now. And from being the high sc- peaked in high school problem, like you were saying with the um, big time adolescence, he's much older now, but hasn't really found a place in life mm-hmm. he still attaches himself to the same symbols of status like his fancy car um from that era the 80s mm-hmm. and but otherwise is you know just eating pizza drinking beer working as um not a contractor because that's a sort of i'm, I'm not but a, a fix-it man for all like by appointment mm-hmm. 
a handyman. And so it's interesting. Actually, I never made that parallel that that's actually the same job, basically, that Miyagi had. Yeah. The roles are kind of reversed in Cobra Kai, where you're sort of rooting for Zubka. Mm-hmm. But then, unfortunately, just because of the nature of his childhood and the, like, emotional abuses he suffered, he falls sort of short of being the Miyagi figure. I kind of, in the beginning of the series, when I started watching it, I didn't like Daniel. Like, he didn't turn out to be a great person. He profited off the image of Miyagi and what Miyagi created in him. He became this wealthy elite who, like, lost his way. His daughter hangs out with a bunch of people that are kind of shitty. Like, his daughter sort of becomes the Alley character. I did not interpret it that way at all. Yeah. His daughter sort of becomes the Alley character before Alley broke up with Johnny, where she's hanging out with these, like, kind of bully kids that aren't so great, that are just, like, super Mm -hmm. popular and super rich and, like, getting a hit and run and just bail from the scene because they're wealthy and they can get away with it. Like, that's sort of the image that he's cultivated around his family. And he's left sort of karate behind beyond the image that he can profit off of. He's abandoned Miyagi's old home in the dojo and hasn't been taking care of it at all. And you're sort of on this journey of like Johnny trying to surpass who he was and not fall into the the trap of becoming John Kreese, but rather becoming more the Miyagi mentor character. Mm-hmm. And this journey of Daniel trying to reignite the balance in his life and recognize the shortcomings in his own life and the sort of damaging tropes that he's put his family into. Yeah, I actually, I don't know why I found it so charming, but I actually really liked how maybe it's because it's, it's a modern form of cheesiness, but that Johnny Lawrence's character, you know, he starts to, he immediately spray paints on the, the, the motto, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. And, you know, uh, says, you know, constantly is yelling at the, the students or the first students that he makes about not being a pussy to people, right? This language and this way of thinking that's sort of outside of our own right now, but feels appropriate to the way his character would grow up. Yeah. And yet he somehow maintains it, like, you still root for him. You feel him trying to break past these things while still remaining very attached to them in a real way. Not so, he doesn't just easily become this perfect um, mentor, teacher. He still makes mistakes and, and has shortcomings, but you can actively see the amount of care that he has for these kids and the amount of pain he feels when they start falling into the same traps that he was put into as a teenager. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you see like this hot kid trying to like recultivate his self image so that he isn't known as the kid with the lip scar and he's really proud of him. But then when you see Hawk essentially become, you know, Johnny Lawrence 2.0, you can see the, the hurt that he has that he would, that he would lash out in that way, that he would be a bully like that because he wants to be better. He wants to do more. Yeah. So I just wanted to lay the groundwork a bit so we know like where these characters are coming in. So what it ends up being is, so Johnny Lawrence starts up a new Cobra Kai dojo because he meets 
a kid named Miguel Diaz, played by, never going to pronounce this right. Oh my God, I know. Zolo Merduana. Sounds pretty good. And so he's getting beat up like Daniel's character in the original Karate Kid. And Johnny Lawrence comes in just like Miyagi and stops those kids uh, from beating him up. And then he's like, I need to train under you. An adult man beating up a bunch of teenagers. Yes, exactly. A little weird. But the parallels with Miyagi, like, I didn't realize how deep they run based on the, the, the handyman connection, too. So that's one side. And so Miguel has some other geeky friends, two of them in particular, right? And one of them is the split lip guy who ends up being Hawk, as you Eli. Um, point on your story, right? But on the other hand, Daniel LaRusso, which is this rivalry that Johnny Lawrence still feels because he sees these signs of Daniel's car dealerships all over town and hates the success that he's enjoying. Daniel LaRusso, though, he ends up, because of his own life things, starting a dojo and takes under his wing a very wild card character, which is Robbie Keane, who is, I'm ca- I can't remember exactly, but I believe it's his biological son. Johnny it's Lawrence's. Johnny's. Yeah, it's Johnny's yeah. son. So Johnny Lawrence's biological son ends up, who, who, but he's been, he never took care of him. He, uh, even though he's biological, yeah, he's he was dad. never really in his life. They know each other and they do meet each other from time to time, but n- he was never there as a true stay-at-home father figure. So he ends up being his rival's student. So it's a very interesting complex sort of interplay between all these different uh, characters and who's being trained by whom and, and what, what the father is. But that mentorship relationship, which is, of course, at the core of the original movie, is what's being inter- uh, replayed in so many different ways. And season two amps that up mm-hmm. even more because some old mentors come back um, and more students come in. Yeah. But I, for me, the star of the show really is Laura, um, Johnny Lawrence's journey. And how much um, how much you're immediately, even though he's a, ended up being a terrible guy in a certain way, um, you're, you're immediately empathetic and root for him to come out of this in a way that makes sense to his character. And I love that they don't cheat his way. They don't just, he doesn't just, there's no switch flip. No, it is he's... a it is a grinding process of unlearning. Yeah, and I think that's accurate. Like he had a complicated childhood with his stepfather, and he had an even more complicated relationship with the only other father figure in his life, his sensei at his dojo, who was at, right. actively an abusive person. So of course he's going to have trauma and he's going to have damage, and he's he's not going to understand how to be a healthy authority figure to young men and women like he's he's just not going to be able to do that effectively but you can see that he wants to be better than what he was trained to be and you can see that he wants to empower these kids in a way that he never really was and i think like what makes him so much more sympathetic what makes you want him to succeed so much as far as the dynamic between daniel and johnny goes i think is because you know, Daniel rose up and became very successful, worked very hard, has a great family. But his family has sort of become the the thing that Daniel fought against in high school in a lot of ways, that wealthy elite that looks down on other people. Um, even You even see that sort of complicated dynamic with his daughter in high school, who abandons her older, like, nerdy friends for the popular group. 
mm-hmm. um, and allows the popular group to sort of bully and mock and 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 abuse her old friend group simply for the sake of fitting in, which I think rings relatively true for like the Johnny character when he was in school was in a very similar position. So when you see Daniel fighting back against his old high school rival, it feels very much like Daniel is punching down. And that's Mm -hmm. not fun. He feels like the aggressor and he feels like the bully now because he is in sort of a position of privilege. Whereas Johnny, who monetarily and physically was in a position of privilege in high school, was absolutely being, you know, emotionally and mentally abused at home and at his dojo which I think is pretty heavily recognized even in the Karate Kid series. And then in Cobra Kai, you see, you get a lot more insight into that. Right. So while Johnny was originally the aggressor and the bully, Daniel's sort of inability to let bygones be bygones and to continue getting back into that mindset of high school where it's like, this is my bully and he made me feel like shit. It feels more like Daniel is going out of his way to prove that he's better than Johnny. To prove that Johnny is a piece of shit who deserves to have nothing. And now he's just Hmm. punching below his weight class. And now he's become the bully. And Johnny is just sad and broken and trying to be better. So even in those moments where like Johnny spray paints a billboard... I don't think that that actively makes Johnny Lawrence a bad person. It makes him a sad person. Mm -hmm. It makes him somebody who needs empathy and needs a support system that he's never had. Whereas Daniel has always had an active support system. And now on top of having a good, strong support system also has the wealth and privilege. Yeah. So it's like this weird class system where like, you're really not in a position to continue this battle anymore. And he just refuses to move on and be better. Yeah. I think emotionally, there's so many things that the show does well too, where, for example, the students in both cases actually, but especially in the case of Cobra Kai, teach the master as much as they're being taught. Miguel and then the other students that come into Cobra Kai Dojo are constantly putting pressure back where it makes sense on the dojo. And actually, if you think of the original Karate Kid movie, it was a moment that I pointed out, I'm like, this is a little bit absurd, where um, Miyagi's like, no questions. If you if you choose karate, it's either a yes or a no. There's no maybe in between, and you will fully obey my authority, no questions asked. It's like, wait a minute, how is this any better than yeah. and like, the Cobra Kai system? You're, you're a strange man that I met 45 minutes ago. Yes. That I just watched beat up a bunch of teenagers. Like, I'm, I'm not going to just, like, be like, yeah, I'll obey everything you say. That's weird. That's fucking odd. <laughs> yeah. But no, I do like the outspoken nature of, of the kids. I like that the kids question it. I like that when Daniel tries to use the Miyagi methods and tries to do the same thing where, like, mm-hmm. you won't ask me questions. They're like... No, like you're just trying to get free child labor out of me. That's fucked up. <laughs> like, I like yep. that. I like those moments. And I like the moments in Cobra Kai where like Johnny calls them a pussy or something. And he's like, yeah, you can't, you, ca- you can't do that. You can't say mm-hmm. that. Like that's, you're, you're negative. You're associating femininity with something negative. That's not cool. Or like, 
hey, you girls can't do karate. And Miguel's just like, I yeah. mean, girls can do karate. And he's like, all right, I guess girls can do karate. Like, it just, oh, yeah. the learning experience that he has to go through to realize, like, this isn't the 1980s. Like, their things yeah. have changed. Teenagers are different people. They have more authority and recognition in themselves and in the world around them. And I need to grow the same way that they do. Yeah. And I I love this famous, my favorite moment of like balancing his, the balancing act of his character is exactly after the, he, he lets girls into the dojo and he's excited about it. So he's in his office and someone's calling him and, and he's like, yeah, yeah, we let girls in now. It's okay. Yeah. Blah, blah, right. And then like cuts out and outside the office and you just hear him closing the phone. He's like, your agenda, what? Yeah. And then he just like hangs up the phone, and you don't know what happens with that conversation, no, no, no. right? But it's like he's up. still not. He says, "Is this a prank?" And then hangs up the phone. Oh yeah, okay. Because it's just a term that he has yes, never heard exactly. And so he's made some progress, but of course he still he still has much ways to go. But I think that's what's open about his his character, and I think you're right. In in Daniel, I didn't think he started off as badly as um you started point, but I I do think. You're, you're probably right. I just wasn't noticing that side of things. But I think his journey is just way less interesting because this rebalancing act is like just not, and not I that just, compelling. I feel like it would have been more compelling if in two seasons he had learned to understand that like where he came from is where Johnny is now. And he mm. took the time to understand what Johnny went through when he was a bully. And I'm not saying that like, if you're bullied in high school, you should forgive your bullies if they have traumatic home lives. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Of course, that's not always true. But if you're a grown adult and you're perpetuating a high school rivalry with a person who is obviously downtrodden, is in a lower socioeconomic status, and and does not have a support system, at that point, you are actively punching down. And that's not cool. Yeah. I do think their early interactions are more, more complicated than that, because he does, he uses his privilege to kind of do, like we were saying with the devil all the time, a kind of embarrassment. Of well, that's the thing. There's a smugness. Right? But he does actually help him out. He helps him out, but he helps Which, him out. Which, considering he was beat up by him multiple times, is already a lot. he helps him out in this way that is smug. He's lording yes. it over him. And that's not helping somebody. He's doing that in a way where he's really not losing that much money. Mm -hmm. And he is solely doing it so that he can lord his success and wealth over a person that is in a lower status than him. It is for his benefit. Mm. He gave Johnny free work on his car for his benefit, not Johnny's. And again, I would say that that is punching down. You're punching below your weight class. I he think is it isn't as, as smug as you're feel shitty. making it out to be, though, because he does, he does have a com uh, multiple conversations with his wife about like how he's like, I don't really want to, to do this. And shouldn't he feel more grateful for what I'm doing here? Like, why do I have to do this? Like, he didn't yeah, want to do it. See, and I disagree again, because I've had those conversations with people who do things solely for the smugness and thanks. And when you are not grateful enough, then they take it out on you more. So it's either you have to humble yourself to a person that is lording their status or their wealth or their position over you and be as grateful and groveling as humanly possible, or they're going to be angry. 
and they're going to make you feel even worse and more humiliated. So your options are like bow before the person or continue the rivalry. And neither of those things feel good. So he wasn't he wasn't doing this because like he, maybe he didn't necessarily want to, but I feel like he genuinely enjoyed the fact that he could. And then when Johnny didn't kiss his ring, he was mm-hmm. angry because he wasn't as thankful or as grateful as he feels Johnny should have been when Johnny actively protested against the free body work and wanted his car back. He didn't want mm-hmm. the free body work from Daniel. He wanted to take his car back and take it to another body shop. He just wanted to be out of the situation. And that boundary was completely disrespected. The free item was forced upon him. And then he was expected to grovel in thanks. And when he didn't, Daniel elected to continue the rivalry and continue pushing buttons. That's not doing something because you're trying to lay things to rest. That's doing a nice thing to be an asshole. He's, I definitely agree. There was like, it's hard, it's hard to weigh the facts that like, I almost think the complication for me is that Daniel almost treats Johnny too nicely in this weird, absurd way, considering what actually happens in the original movie. And we don't know their relationship after. Presumably they never saw each other after based on Cobra Kai. And it's like, He's well, no, literally beat to shit by too, someone. I, I can't imagine wanting to do anything for someone like that. Um, or wanting to be involved in that person's life. But then in addition, Johnny does even more stuff. He draws the dick on, on his, on his poster and, and so on and so forth. So I certainly don't think Johnny's innocent in all these things. I'm not saying it's just Johnny very understandable why he acts the way he does. I'm not saying Johnny is innocent, but at a certain point, one of them needs to be the adult in the situation and the one who's below the poverty line and has no support system is probably not going to be the person acting maturely. But the one with an established family, a wealthy lifestyle, Mm. and a successful business that they personally own and are looking into expanding upon could stand to be a little less manipulative and could stand to be a little less aggressive. He has the option to walk away, and at no point does he elect to do that. He either continues trying to lord it over him by pretending to be the bigger person in the situation, or punching down and below his weight class to be the same bully that Johnny was to him. Like, it's a role reversal to me, because Johnny was the wealthy elite, with all of the, mm-hmm. like, support, all of the friends. Daniel was the new kid at school from, like, a lower socioeconomic class. He lived in a shitty apartment. Yeah, It's role reversal, but it's certainly done in a very, very different way. Because, of course, Johnny... Of course, Daniel doesn't ever actually punch him or, call, like, do, like, aggressive things to him. It's all in this elitist, manipulative way that mm-hmm. he fights, well, fights his fight. Obviously, because I think they are adults... So I think, like, it's less socially acceptable for an adult to punch another adult in public than it is for, like, a teenager to get in a fight. Like, as as inappropriate as that is, it is, it is less socially acceptable. But I, I The don't dojo know. thing was probably the most insane to me. Yeah. Where he buys the, the plaza. And even his wife points out, it's like, you literally got the rent doubled on, like, two other stores yeah. in that plaza. And, and probably ruined people's lives. And that's what I mean. For, like, like a petty fight. 
it's that's how insane is that it's it's elitism it's like and Mm -hmm. and i get it you still feel shitty about being bullied in high school and that sucks but at some point you need to be a fucking adult and move on and grow past it that doesn't mean you have to forgive the person but it does mean you need to understand when to walk away because at some point you're just going to be disrupting more people's lives and he does that to his family he's neglecting his own business for the sake of this battle that he really started mm-hmm. up again he's neglecting his own children for another man's child he has yeah. gentrified an entire neighborhood and like run people at a like pseudo run people out of business because he double he caused their rent to be doubled just to damage a man who is so down on his luck that the only thing he really has is a fucking dojo that he can barely pay the rent on. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to give forgiveness to every person that treats you badly, but you do have the option to set a boundary and walk away from it until you've dealt with yourself. And that's the thing that he's not doing. And that's a level of elitism and immaturity and privilege that makes his character fucking irritating. And he never learns in those two seasons. He just continues the fight. And to me, it's more understandable Mm. that Johnny would continue fighting back and pushing back and would continue feeling shitty about himself and lashing out about it, given his previous circumstances And, like, the small things that he has to grasp onto essentially being continuously taken away from him by somebody that he harmed in high school and can never get away from for no reason. Mm Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think, I'm thinking of the question, too, of does Daniel opening the dojo and helping out John Keane? Robbie Keane. What's Robbie Keane is was that a healthy thing for him or not now of course there's a clear way in which at a certain point it becomes unhealthy because we like characters pointed out in the certain beginning stages i wonder about that i wonder whether that was where he needed to go in his life or whether that really was just a continuation of this rivalry and actually is the cobra kai of this in that it's this bad way of training this bad way of doing things well and um, that's being put up put up here Finding karate again is not unhealthy for him because, you know, as you saw in his youth and then as you saw in the beginning of him finding karate again, he's he's renewing balance in his life. And at first he does seem to be coming to like a healthier, sort of more stable outlook where like things with him and Johnny get a little less tense and he's a little kinder and he's a little more present with his family you know, and his daughter starts getting back into karate again, and that's very healthy for her. But then he takes it too far and opens, reopens this dojo, takes another man's child under his wing, when, like, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with providing a safe haven for a child that doesn't have it, but at no point does he try to speak to Johnny about the fact that Mm -hmm. his son's mother ran out on him And Johnny is being a deadbeat dad and like his kid needs a support system or he's going to end up the same way Johnny did. Like at no point does he try and speak with the school about this, about the truancy, about the lack of parental supervision, about the fact that he needs a support system. He doesn't try to speak to the father or 
ingratiate yeah. the father back well, into the child's life. The he show doesn't try to do any of that. Yeah, the show builds the coincidences to help smooth that over in that he only knows about Robbie's mother leaving him alone. And that's why they initially take him in. And it's only later that he finds out that he's Johnny's kid. Mm-hmm. So there's a complicated thing where he's already taken him into their own home, not just like into the dojo, but literally living with them before he even knows. I mean, yes, but A, it's strange that when you find out a child's one parental figure leaves, you don't do anything to try and determine if they have another parental figure. Mm. Because he never asks him. He's just like, oh, your mom ran out on you. True. And B, the minute you do find out who the child's father is, instead of trying to do anything to repair that relationship or show that you aren't trying to manipulate that relationship for your own benefit, he just continues to battle with Johnny. Mm-hmm. It's like you had the option. Johnny got angry and lashed out when he found out that his son was living with you. Fine. Okay, I can understand that. And you're not going to have that conversation in that moment. But he had time after that to mm-hmm. have that conversation. And instead, he chose to essentially neglect the new child that he took in that has no one and not have a conversation with Johnny about how like, hey, this like I had no idea it was your son, but he does need some kind of a support system because his mom is falling short. And at no point does he even call CPS the real people that you should have called when you Mm -hmm. find out that there's like a fucking latchkey kid with no parental supervision that's not going to school ever. Yeah, I did find that insane. I was like, how is there not a more official channel being like used here? But you know, with uh, Cobra Kai hits that kind of teen drama thing where there's a lot of stuff like that often happen, like Riverdale type shows where there's a lot of like childcare and runaways and stuff that probably should be have more authoritative yeah like if you have a riverdale or skins or where a kid runs away and there's and and no one does anything about it like if you don't have that storyline like are you even one of those shows like (laughs) it's so it's so ridiculously common it's true it's true but i do find it strange that this like oh absolutely especially when his wife is like consistently being like daniel's voice of reason in many Mm -hmm. circumstances where she's calling him out on this bullshit rivalry that he's perpetuating but like at no point is even his wife like we should probably like try and find out where his fucking parents are or call cps or like call the school you know like we should probably report this like it's cool if he stays here but Somebody should know that even if his mother comes back, she's fucking neglecting her child and doesn't give a shit about him. Yeah. It's like, what was the game plan if the mom came back? You're just like, they just give him back to her. And they're like, yeah, Yeah. cool. You disappeared for two weeks. But here, take your teenage son back when he has absolutely no parental supervision and has basically dropped out of school. That's fine. (laughs) What? Yeah. We've definitely gone pretty over time on this uh, episode as a, as a whole. So I, I, I'm not sure what I want to say, but I, I want to reinforce the fact that I, I, the show really grew me. I began it as a very guilty pleasure show. I'm like, this could be fun starting it up things, but it, the emotional impact of the show, it's, it remains in that teenagery show feel, but somehow the power of the characters and the power of the story with the adults and the characters. Like, yeah. I find in shows like Riverdale, the adult characters, while they're adults and they do adult things, they rarely get 
powerful stories of their own journeys, right? Their stories are kind yeah. of I think con- very deeply connected to their kids. Really in Riverdale that I felt was like a decent journey for the character was Jughead's dad, F.P. Yes. Jones. Completely. Where like he had, he had a legitimate story arc and a redemption arc that was like interesting and compelling. Also, I just really love Skeet Ulrich. Yes, I know. Yeah. I love him. I loved, loved him in the, so. I loved him in the 90s. I love him now. He's still a fox. But anyway, like he had a genuinely compelling storyline where I feel like most of the parents, their storyline is incredibly connected to their kids. So like Hiram and like whatever Veronica's mom's name is, like they obviously have like a decent enough story arc, but it's incredibly ingrained in this weird rivalry they have with their own child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like Betty's mom and like Betty's dad are interesting story arcs, but they are, of course, incredibly ingratiated into the children, whereas FP's redemption arc felt very, as as much as it affected Jughead, it felt individualistic. Mm-hmm. And and that's the thing here. I think the, the, the emotional impact is that the balance between Johnny Lawrence and Daniel Russo's, as we've been arguing and I'm talking about here, the, the depths of their characters and how many factors are at play here, and that the kids get full, they get the f- full protagonist roles, full karate fun roles and, and character arcs in it. The fact that it's able to do both and that they interplay in very strong ways, emotionally gripping ways, mm-hmm. I think is just incredible. And I love the how how they flash back to the original movie. There's it Rewatching the original movie is so hilarious how Cobra Kai, you're watching over two seasons, which is what, like, let's say on the conservative end, 16 hours, right? And they just keep flashing back to these same scenes because they only have so much content to go no, with, but right? Here's, but they here's, really pull out of it. Here's the interesting thing, though. Because I looked this up, and the scenes that they show in Cobra Kai from the old movie, any of the scenes that are at the tournament specifically are completely unseen footage that was not in the movie. Because it turns out oh. that the director, um, what did I say his name was? John G... Uh, Alvidson had shot um, hundreds of hours of this fucking tournament footage from various different angles and just picked mm. the best cuts. Oh, um, so they had lots of footage to work with to keep yeah, bringing back memories. Exactly. Quote, so quote. when they mm. went into the, I guess, archive for this movie, they found hundreds of hours of unseen footage from the original Karate Kid. So they just plucked new pieces and new angles and new scenes that had never been shown before to use in the flashback footage so that it would be reminiscent of the Karate Kid, but you would Mm -hmm. be seeing new vantage points and new aspects of the story that were totally new. Fair enough. Although, you know, the amount of scenes you see with them on motorcycles or them in those skeleton costumes is, like, noticeably a lot. Um, So even though it's... Because even if it's different camera angles or different views, there's still these... these, There's only a few... So many scenes in the movie that they can um, bring back. And especially when you're thinking about John Lawrence's character who's had another 30 years of life that he keeps reminiscing about these, like, two months of his life. um, Which are very crucial to his life, but it's just funny. 
No, I, I, I agree. I agree. Like, there's only so many angles of the skeleton costumes or the dirt bikes that you can see before it looks like the same thing. But I just thought that was really interesting that they tried that, to that make it as fresh as possible while still giving you that kind of iconic, nostalgic feel of the original Karate Kid. Yeah. So, I, and I, th- so I think Cobra Kai really connects to that past and the the new generation, the old generation, all the interplay. Yeah. It just works really well. Like, honestly, a show that I had. I wouldn't say rock bottom expectations of, but very lukewarm expectations of that really just knocked it out of the park. Especially because I'm pretty sure it was originally made for like fucking YouTube, YouTube. which is wild to me that it's, (laughs) it's so good and it genuinely feels like it has solid production quality, but no, it, it definitely feels like a show that's made for like Gen Xers and millennials that have kids now, you know, so that their kids Hmm. can enjoy it. But it's it's it has that strong character arc and the strong like plot around those integral original Karate Kid characters. So you yep. get to see that like iconic rivalry renewed in a way that's compelling and interesting and mature for an adult. Absolutely. Um, I think that's that's it for me. I don't want to run too far over time. So yeah, do you have any closing? Closing thoughts. I mean, I can't not bring this up. How was Ralph Macchio 22 when fucking Karate Kid? <laughs> I'm sorry. This is like a five second thing. I just, he looks like a 15 year old boy. Rewatch Karate yeah. Kid. It is impossible to believe that's a 22 year old man, but it is. And it's shocking to think that Zabka is fucking younger than him. He was only 19 when that movie was made. Mm. How is he younger than Ralph Macchio? It's insane. It's, it's ridiculous. I completely agree, and I I did want to mention actually, in the in the rich the movie Karate Kid, one scene that I actually in the rewatch did not remember, but think is so powerful or only vaguely remembered, but is the connection with the Japanese internment camps yeah. with Miyagi and drinking with his wife, who was not given the proper medical attention yeah. when she was giving birth, and so she died, and yeah, that, that he doesn't is... have a kid. The scene and, that got Pat Morita nominated for the Oscar that year. Uh, yeah, it's it's powerful. And yeah. it's a different aspect of that story that I think can be forgotten when you're just thinking of the hype uh, fighting scenes mm-hmm. and, the, and the wax on, wax off. But it's this beautiful moment that connects to the real history of the United States. And I think it's it's interesting how it's like, it's so subtle. Like, it doesn't feel like a throwaway, but it's just kind of this subtle thing where you're learning the motivation behind Miyagi in this quiet, very simple moment um, where yes. he served in, I think it was like the 442nd Regiment of the Army in World War II, which was predominantly made up of Japanese Americans, many of whom were at the time in internment camps. And really your options were live in an internment camp or fucking fight in the war. So he fought in the war and his wife remained at the relocation center while she was pregnant and in childbirth dies because she receives no medical attention and has a complication at birth. So he fights for a country that puts him in a concentration camp because of sheer racism Mm -hmm. and then his wife dies again because of racism yeah 
And again, you have that connection to Pat Morita's own life as a Japanese American, where his, him and his family were placed in a Japanese internment camp, a concentration camp in Mazarna, I think, Northern California. And that is where he spent some of his childhood during World War II, solely because despite being born in America as an American citizen, Japan, the country, was allied with Nazi Germany, and therefore all Japanese Americans were under suspicion, and the majority were placed in concentration camps. Yeah. Great scene. It gave me a a new little uh, outlook on the movie, and I think it brings up the movie's what the movie provides to to film history to to the viewer in in yeah. this in this moment yeah do you want to outro yeah yeah if you want to watch the karate kid for nostalgia or cobra kai they are both on netflix right now and you know if you enjoy this podcast you can follow us on twitter at fans lab pod and you know we can be found on on any podcast listening platform that you use all right thanks for listening thanks for joining us bye bye